Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, that will be our text this Lord's Day as we uh, continue in our study of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we are now at the point in Exodus where uh, God's people are there at the foot of Mount Sinai and God is giving uh, His law to His people beginning with these Ten Commandments. Uh, we looked last Lord's Day at the preface to the Ten Commandments, those first two verses where God makes it clear, uh, first and foremost, that He has already saved His people, uh, He has redeemed His people, and now He's giving them His law. And we talked about even in respects to the gospel, we are saved and then we are told how to live. Uh, we are not saved through our works, but our works should come as a result of our salvation. Uh, we also looked last week at, at how you have different types of law in the Old Testament, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral and how there are some of those laws then that we see carry over into the New Testament. There are others uh, that we no longer abide by because, uh, for example, with the ceremonial law, uh, Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. He is the, the great and final sacrifice. And we looked at how the, the civil law was a law given to Israel as a church state, and, and now Christ is our king. Those things pointed towards him, and now we are a people spread out over many nations under many civil laws. But how the moral law is something that Christ not only speaks to, he elevates. And we see that in the Ten Commandments. And so these commandments are still very applicable for us today. And I pray that we would learn from them. And so today we're going to be looking just there at verse 3, at that first commandment. But I want us to read the context here. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 as I read for our study today. So if you're able to stand, if you would as I read these first 17 verses of Exodus chapter 20. God's people are now gathered there at Mount Sinai, and this is what God says to them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's you would pray with me father this is your word given through the power of your holy spirit i pray that we might 
understand it today, that we might hide it in our heart, that we would not sin against you, that we might see the glory of Christ in it. We ask that you would do this work now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned last week, we see that the the Ten Commandments are a matter of great controversy today. In fact, in recent decades, it seems that each year we see some type of court case involving the Ten Commandments. Uh, Some of the more famous that stand out a few years ago, there was one in New Mexico. Uh, The ACLU sued the city of Bloomfield, uh, a different Bloomfield, Bloomfield, New Mexico, over a 3,000-pound Ten Commandments monument that was sitting on the lawn in front of the city hall. The judge ruled for the removal of the monument on the grounds that it violated the First Amendment. Uh, a decade before that, here in our own Commonwealth in Kentucky in 2004, the ACLU sued three Kentucky counties for displaying copies of the Ten Commandments in public schools and courthouses. In a 5-4 vote, the District Court and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals voted in the ACLU's favor. They said that people who passed the Ten Commandments, the copies of them by the courts and in other public buildings, they would think that the government was endorsing religion, and so they ordered that they be removed. A year before that, one of the more famous court cases in our country happened in Alabama in 2003. U.S. District Judge Myron Thompson ruled that Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore, his placement of the 2.6 ton granite Ten Commandments Commandments monument in the state building violated the Constitution's principle of separation of church and state. Moore refused to have the monuments removed, which end resulted in him being removed from office. These are just a few of many cases that have taken place that are currently taking place in our nation where people have said that the Ten Commandments have no place, that they should not be posted, that this is a violation. And as Christians, I would imagine that most of us disagree with that. And most of us probably do not side with the ACLU in these cases. And yet... Something we need to understand that is important as we believe the Ten Commandments are, the question is, what do the Ten Commandments actually mean? I mentioned last week about one representative in Georgia who had sponsored a bill to have the Ten Commandments posted, but when asked by a reporter to actually tell him what the Ten Commandments were, he didn't know. He was able to come up with three of them. If we were to have a pop quiz today, perhaps that would be the case for many of us. And so as passionately as we might believe that these commandments should be posted, and I think that that there's a place for that, we as Christians need to go deeper than just thinking about placing these on a wall, in a building, or on a monument. We need to understand what the Ten Commandments actually say. And not just memorize them or understand what they say, but, but how do they apply to us today? And so what I want to do is we walk through each of these commandments is I want us to think about those things by asking three questions. We're going to ask these three questions about each commandment, starting with the first commandment today. The first question is this. What does this commandment teach us about the character of God? You see, God is revealing Himself to His people through His law. 
God's people know that He is a saving God, that He has redeemed them, He's brought them out of their slavery, now He's taking them on to the promised land, and now He is revealing Himself to them. He is teaching them about His character through giving these commands. And so the first question we need to ask is, what does each commandment teach us about the character of God? Well, the second question we will ask is this, what does the commandment teach us about the heart of man? For just as each commandment teaches us about the lawgiver, the, the commandment teaches us something about those God is giving the law to. That God gives His law to His people to restrain them. And in doing that, we learn something about the heart of man from each of these commandments. We learn something about the ways that we are tempted to sin from each of these commandments. And so that's the second question we'll ask. What does this commandment teach us about the heart of man? And then the third question we'll look at with each commandment is this. How does this commandment point us towards Jesus? What does it teach us about Jesus Christ and the gospel? And how does Jesus transform this commandment? Because last week as we looked, we see Jesus there on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he brings in the moral law. He brings in the Ten Commandments. But He transforms them and He elevates them. And so those three questions for each commandment will be, what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about man? And what does it teach us about Jesus? And that will be the outline for our study, beginning with this first commandment. What does this commandment teach us about the character of God? And we see this, the first point in your outline, that it teaches us that God calls us to worship Him and Him alone. God calls us to worship Him and Him alone. And this was foundational for the people of God at this point in their exodus. If you've been with us through our study, you know that when the Israelites were there in Egypt, they were exposed to uh, polygamy, to polygamy, to polytheism. Uh, maybe polygamy with that. But to polytheism, uh, the worship of many gods. Uh, they saw there in Egypt how there were these different statues, these different icons, these different sacrifices made to all these different gods in Egypt. And so, for example, we talked about the sun god Ra. Uh, the people of Egypt believed that each night that the sun god Ra, as the sun went down, that this god Ra would go to the underworld, that he would do battle against all these other gods, that he would ra rise victorious that next morning, and so as the sun came up, that he was in essence being born again. And so they would worship him and celebrate him as this victorious God every day as the sun rose. And so they worshipped the sun. And we also know in our study of Exodus that they worshipped the Nile. And so there were many different gods of the Nile. They would make sacrifices at the Nile. And oftentimes we found Pharaoh going to the Nile there in the morning as the sun was rising, probably to make different sacrifices to gods like Osiris, who is believed to be one of the gods of the Nile. And so we saw all these false gods there in Egypt, and we saw how when God brought those plagues against Egypt, He was bringing judgment against these false gods. And so, for example, when God turns the Nile to blood, He is bringing judgment against those false gods of the Nile. And when God brought darkness over Egypt, He was bringing judgment against this false god of Egypt, against the sun god Ra. And so we see how the Egyptians worshipped these false gods, but also how God's people were tempted to worship these false gods as well. Now they spent centuries there in Egypt. And as they spent those centuries in Egypt, 
they begin to become a bit like the Egyptians. And so as I've mentioned before, the Exodus isn't just about getting God's people out of Egypt, it's about getting Egypt out of God's people. And so we see that one of the things God had to deal with fundamentally is this call that they were to have no gods before Him because they were tempted to have other gods before Him. We see this temptation, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 20, where God says this to His people, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But Then God tells us this, But they rebelled against Me, and were not willing to listen to Me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And so we will see how long after this portion of Exodus, God's people will struggle and will be tempted to go back to the gods that they worship, the false gods that they worship in Egypt. And we'll see it in our study of Exodus as we come to Exodus 32, that familiar passage where as Moses is up the mountain receiving the law from God, uh, the people come and complain to Aaron. They want someone to lead them. They want to worship something. And so they melt down all their gold and they create this golden calf. And they begin to worship this calf. And many times you may have read that and wonder, well, why a, a golden cow? Well, that's exactly what they had seen in Egypt. There was much false worship in Egypt, and one of the things they worshipped was a fertility god. And the fertility god was often represented by this image of a cow. And so they would bow down to these false images like that of a cow or a bull and would worship them. And so what God is doing here in this first commandment is foundational because He's telling His people something about Himself. He's saying he won't share his worship with a golden cow. And he won't share his worship with the sun god or the river god. He demands that they worship him and him alone. And he knows in that that his people will be tempted to worship other things. And this temptation goes back far before the Israelites' time in Egypt. This temptation goes all the way back to the garden. And you think about what happens there in the garden. God is giving the first commandment in the garden. He is looking to Adam and Eve and He is saying to them, you should worship Me and worship Me alone. I am God and God alone. And yet, what are they tempted to do? The serpent comes to Eve and says that she can be like God. That Adam can be like God if they'll eat from that tree, that forbidden fruit. That tree that God had placed in the garden to remind Adam and Eve that they were not God. That He was God. That He had ultimate dominion. And so in their temptation to be like God themselves, in their temptation to take glory from God and God alone, they sinned and they fell. And so we see in this commandment that God is teaching His people that He refuses to share His worship with anyone or anything else. And we also see in this commandment that we are tempted, much like the Israelites and much like Adam and Eve before them, we are tempted as well to worship other gods. And that takes us to that second question. What does this commandment teach us about the heart of man? And it teaches us this, point two, we are tempted to worship other gods. Now, even in saying that, again, there's a difference between polytheism 
and polygamy. We'll stick with polytheism here. When I say worshiping other gods, polytheism, our immediate response to that may be, well, well, I'm not tempted to worship other gods. Now, oftentimes when we think about polytheism, we think about religions like Hinduism. In Hinduism, there's over 330 million gods. In fact, if you've ever had a chance to go to a, a, another nation to see a, a Hindu worship site, you've seen this, how the Hindu worship sites don't center necessarily around one Hindu deity, that there's all these different deities to worship. And the one that stands out to me that I've been to several times is there in Malaysia, at Batu Caves. There at Batu Caves, there's a 140-foot gold statue to one of these false gods of Hinduism. And just around the corner from that, there's this 50-foot green statue of a man's body with the head of a monkey on it. And that's another false god that they worship. And then as you ascend these steps into Batu Caves, you find all these little shrines along the way, and, and this false god of Hinduism has all these different arms, and this one has all these different eyes, and what you find every step you take is there's another god that they're worshiping, another false deity. They worship many different gods. And most of us, I would assume, in this room would clearly reject that. And most of us, I would assume, if we were to go down the streets in Nelson County and see a 50-foot statue of a monkey god, we probably wouldn't be tempted to pull over to the side of the road and start bowing down before it. And so we look at polytheism, we look at the worship of many gods and think, well, well at least that's something I don't wrestle with. But friends, I think what we see here in the first commandment is that this very much is something that we wrestle with. It just looks different than it looks in many parts of the world. See, the enemy has tempted us in other ways. The enemy has tempted us not so much to bow down and, and worship these false gods of Hinduism, but he's put plenty of false gods in our life. Puritan Matthew Henry says it this way, he says, pride makes a God of self. Covetousness makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on, more than God, that whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. And so you be honest with yourself this morning. Is there anything in your life that you esteem are you love more than God? Is there anything that you fear or you serve more than God? Is there anything that you delight in or depend on more than God? What is it that you think about when you wake up? What is it that you think about when you're going to bed? What is it that you think about when you've got a three-day weekend? What is it that occupies your thoughts and your heart and your desires? What is it that you long for? And if you ask those questions honestly, you begin to see that we too are tempted to worship other things. We too are tempted to give our affections to other things. And I think in our culture, in our context today, the God that we are tempted to worship the most is ourself. Our culture has taught us to lessen who God is and to elevate who we are. And so you think about when we teach the things that the Scripture says about God, that God is a God of wrath. 
That God is a God of righteousness. That God is a God who there at Mount Sinai says, if you cross this line, you should die. When we preach this view of God, what does the culture say? Well, no, God's not like that. My God would never judge anyone. My God loves everyone. You know what? When I think about God, I just get this warm, fuzzy feeling. And we have diminished God to some sort of supernatural Santa Claus, some type of grandparent just waiting for us to ask for something. Someone who accepts everything and would never judge anyone for anything. And surely would never condemn anybody because of sin. And at the same time, what have we done with ourselves? Believe in yourself. Trust your heart. Go with your gut. Depend on yourself. And so what our culture has done is lessened who God is and has elevated who we are to the point where maybe we don't say it this way, but really who the God of our life is so often is ourself. And you don't have to look around much to see this in our culture today. In fact, I was reminded of it just the other day. I heard a news story that, honestly, when I heard it, I thought, well, that's got to be a joke of some sort. Maybe this is April 1st and I forgot and... So I went home, did a little research, and sure enough, it was true. You know, we have in our culture a monogamy, a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. We have, here's the polygamy part, we have polygamy. So you've got those who believe you should marry many people at the same time. Well, there's something new in our culture, sologamy. And sologamy, solo, now is those who believe that they found the perfect person, and that perfect person is themselves. And so we now live in a culture where people are beginning to marry themselves. And when I say this, I'm not joking. That there is an all-out ceremony. They send out invitations. They invite people to a wedding. They walk an aisle. I read one account of where the person walked the aisle. And when they got up front, there was a mirror. And they looked in that mirror and they made vows to themselves. And as I read these accounts, it was astonishing to just read people talk about how, yeah, I found the person who will never let me down. (laughs) I found the perfect person for me, and that person is me. And so they are celebrating themselves in a rebellion against God's created order in the garden for marriage to be a man and a woman in a covenant relationship. And I think that's such... A picture of where the tendency of our heart can take us. That we elevate ourselves and that we diminish God. Friends, we are tempted to worship others as well. Just like Adam and Eve were. Just like the Hebrews were. Because we, like they, are stubbornly independent. And we live in a culture that that prides itself and values this sense of independence. And there are some good things about independence. It is a good thing to get to a point in the world where you can take care of yourself. I had the awesome opportunity on Friday night of watching my son graduate from high school. And as I watched him walk down and receive that diploma, I thought, he's going to buy me lunch one day. Maybe. I thought, you know what? He, he, he is a step closer 
to taking care of himself. He's a step closer to being independent. Now, those of you who are beyond the child graduating from high school are probably saying, well, he's not as far along as you think yet. But, but, but that's something we value, isn't it? We usually don't meet people and talk to them and hear them say, yeah, I just hope that my kids can never do anything for themselves, you know. No, no, we value that we can take care of ourselves. We value that our kids as they grow can, can do some things on their own, that we have this sense of pride and independence. And so there's, there's value there. But like anything else, we can take it to an extreme. And what we've done, oftentimes even in the church today, is we've taken this to the extreme of, I'm going to depend on me. And so you think about when a problem comes. When a crisis hits in your life. Or just something small. When, when something breaks. When something goes wrong. When something doesn't go according to plan. So many of us, our first response is, how can I fix this? And there's some things we can easily just pick up a tool and we can fix. And then there's a lot of things that we can't fix. But we live in a culture that values more, even in the church today, the work of our hands than the work of our knees. And so we look to see how can I fix this rather than dropping on our knees and seeking God and saying, God, will you help me here? And so what we find is that we are stubbornly independent and this independence is a sin. The prophet Isaiah says it this way, Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. And so this stubborn independence, this desire to take care of ourselves, whether it's Adam and Eve in the garden saying they want to be like God, or it's the Israelites in Egypt saying they want to worship these other gods, or it's us today looking out for number one. These are fruits of a sinful heart. And the Scripture says there's no tool that we can pick up on our own to fix this. In fact, Romans chapter 3 says it this way. Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. Well, what does that mean? Well, it goes on. What well, means no one understands. No one seeks for God. Well, what does that mean? He goes on. That means all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Well, give us a little bit more, Paul. Okay, no one does good, not even one. And so Paul makes it clear here that we have this sin problem in our life and that we cannot fix this. But he says there is a way that it can be dealt with. And that's through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that takes us to the third point, that third question. How does Jesus transform this commandment? What does Jesus do with this command that we should have no other gods before the one true God? How does Jesus make this possible? We see that in point three. Jesus provides the way for us to worship God and God alone. Jesus is the one who said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus now makes it possible for us to worship the one true God. Jesus makes it available. He is the way through which we can now obey this command to have no other gods before the one true God. Jesus says, come to me. I am the way to God. And not only that, in that same passage in John 14, 
He says to them, if you know me, you know the Father. He says he's in the Father and the Father's in him. He says that he's the way, not a way to the Father, that he's the only way, and it's only through him that we can know the one true God. Jesus here makes a very exclusive claim. He says the only way we can obey the first commandment to worship God and God alone is through Him. And friends, that that is a claim that our culture today rejects. You want to be unpopular? You just stand up in any forum today and any group of people today for the most part. And you say to them, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe that there's no other way to God but through Jesus. Therefore, I believe that all other world religions are false and lead people directly to hell. You say that in certain places, you'll probably get sued. You say that in other places, you're going to get called a lot of things. Our culture today prides itself on this idea that, okay, we'll give you Christianity as long as you understand that that's just one of many options on the table here. And as long as it's one of many options, there's no exclusivity, that there's no exclusive option to God. We're okay with that. But as soon as you start saying, no, that's the only way, well, then we have a problem. In fact, the mantra of our culture, I think, is very much like what I read not long ago from one spiritual guru, mystic from India. He said it this way, God can be realized through all paths. All religions are true. The important thing is to reach the roof. You can reach it by stone stairs or by wooden stairs or by bamboo steps or by a rope. You can also climb up by a bamboo pole. The important thing is that you reach the roof. Well, that's been told in many forms by many people. Essentially, it's that there's all these different ways to God. Who's to say which one's right and which one's wrong? As long as we remember that there's one God and there's many paths to that God. That's the mantra of our culture. But friends, that's not the words of our God. For our God says there is one and you shall have no others before Him. Our God says I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the claim of Jesus. There is no way to the Father except through Him. And if we choose to accept the mantra of our day, if we choose to buy into this idea of pluralism, that there are many different paths, many different ways to God, if we choose to accept that, we are choosing to reject the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can't have the Gospel of Jesus alongside all these other things. You can have them, but not it, or it and not them. And that is what Jesus Himself said, isn't it? Not just when He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. But when He made any statement about the exclusive access He has and who He is. He didn't just say it about other gods. He said it about other things. Money. Jesus said, you can't have 
money as your God and me as your God. One will be your God, but you can't have both. And so Jesus, like the Father, in Exodus 20, verse 3, He will not share His glory with another. And He will not invite us to a divided worship. He says it is all or it is none. And if we buy into this culture idea of pluralism, we buy into a false gospel. One commentator I read this week said it this way, this pluralistic approach to religion is a direct attack on the first commandment in which we're commanded to worship God alone. God is as intolerant today as ever. To deny that Jesus is the only way is to say that there are other gods, but there are no other gods. This false theology must be rejected both for the honor of Christ and for the keeping of the first commandment. Jesus claims exclusive rights to our worship. He is not simply one among many prophets. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He is the only incarnate Son of God. He alone kept the whole law for God's people, offered a perfect sacrifice for our sins, and was raised from the dead to open the way to eternal life. So He alone deserves our praise. And so friends, there's none other that we can worship today rightly. The question is, are there others that we are worshiping? Are there relationships in our life that have our affection more than God? Are there things in our life, bank accounts, careers, jobs, leisure, whatever it might be, are there things there that are at the place that only God should be? Jesus makes it possible for us to obey the first commandment because He invites us to worship Him and worship Him alone. And so the way that we Obey the first commandment today is by lifting high the name of Jesus. Not my name, not your name, not my wants, not your wants, not our desires. We lift high the name of Jesus. We glorify the name of Jesus. And as we bring glory to Jesus, we do what God calls us to do here. We worship God and God alone. We read it this way in 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. You may have read that closure to 1 John 5 before and thought, we just kind of, just kind of, Squeezed in there, keep yourself from idols. But no, it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Because he says here, we we know God through the Son. We worship God through the Son. We've been given the one true way to God, eternal life. Therefore, reject all others. Turn from everything else. And so friends, whatever it is in your life today that has captured your affection more than the God who's created us, The call today is to repent of that. To reject that. And to worship Christ and Christ alone. To consider in the great scheme of all eternity how the things that we spend so much time today 
anxious about and worried about and fretting about and planning for and paying for and scheduling our lives around. So many of these things in the grandness of eternity will not last. So why would you give them that which belongs to God? God who will last. God who commands us to worship Him. God who we glorify by lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. And so friends, today I invite you to glorify Jesus. That's the response. is to repent of all these other things and to glorify the name of Christ. And so in just a few moments, we're going to have, to chance, have a chance to do that through worship. We're going to sing all glory be to Christ because that is the only place the glory belongs. And I invite you during that time to respond through your worship, to respond through your repentance. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be here in the front. Other pastors can be here as well. We would love to, to pray for you, to pray for others that perhaps you're burdened for today, to, to talk to you more about the gospel of Christ and what it means to have salvation in Him and no other. To answer any questions you have about church membership, whatever it may be. But primarily, we offer this time a response that we might glorify the name of Christ. Because friends, there is no other name. There is no other name. In heaven or on earth, that deserves our praise. And so if you would stand together as I pray for our time, as we lift high the name of Jesus. Father God, we do come to you in the name of Christ. And I pray, God, in this time we have left this morning, that we would, that we would glorify the name of Jesus. That we would praise the name of Jesus. That, that we would remember that our, our salvation is not because of something we did. It is entirely because of what Christ did for us. We who did not deserve that sacrifice. We who do not deserve Your grace and mercy. We can come into Your presence because of what Christ has done. Father, in these moments as we sing, will You remind us of the great truths of the Gospel that He who knew no sin took on the burden for our sin on the cross. That we can have life in His name. Lord, would You help us to give glory to the name of Jesus as we sing. We ask this in His name. Amen.